Our Heavenly Father, I thank you also so much for your word. And I pray, Father, that your name will be glorified this morning through your word, that you would teach us how to glorify you in suffering. And Father, I pray while you give us open ears, open hearts and minds, and um, through the power of your spirit that we would receive your word. And I pray, Father, while we do that, you would make us more to be like Christ for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, make us more like Christ. Do you know that's a very dangerous prayer? Um, what does it mean to be more like Christ? To be more humble? To be more holy? To be more loving? To be more compassionate? That's all true, yes. But to become more like Christ also means to suffer more. And our Lord is called the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, persecuted and hated by the world. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know how much we think about that when we pray that prayer. Make us more like Christ. Do you really want to be like him? Do you really want that? You see, there's a cost involved in being a Christian. Are you prepared for that cost? Are you prepared for unjust sufferings for Christ's sake? If you call yourself a Christian, Peter says, you should expect it. Um, Peter has mentioned persecution and suffering for Christ in every chapter we read so far in this epistle. Why? Because these Christians he's writing to, they already have experienced it. They were mocked, they were insulted, they were maligned just for being a follower of Christ. That was their life as strangers and exiles in this world. And when Peter, but when Peter wrote this letter, there wasn't um, widespread empire-wide persecution yet. Um, they weren't hunted down like dogs and killed by the Romans. Not yet. But Peter knew that this sort of suffering would be coming their way. And in fact, if we look at history, we know that under Nero, a couple of years later only, and then especially in the second century, that's exactly what happened to the Christians. They were killed and they were martyred for their faith. And as a good shepherd, as a pastor, Peter cares for his people. In verse 12, he actually doesn't say, dear friends. He says, beloved. You know, um, Peter would have worn that shirt that I got last week at the picnic. I love KPC. He would have worn that. Maybe not that one because it said underneath um, in a German way. Um, maybe, maybe it would be in a Galatian way in a sense. But you see, he cared for these people. He loved these people. And Peter wanted to prepare them for the coming persecution. And, for, and, and how to deal with what they experienced already. And you know, these first century brothers and sisters in Christ, they weren't different from us. They were like you and me. They didn't like sufferings. They didn't like the pain. They didn't like to be rejected. They too had that natural instinct to coil away from suffering. And um, they ask themselves the same questions that we ask. Aren't we God's people? 
Aren't we a holy nation, a royal priesthood chosen by God? We're trying to mortify sin, trying to deal with it and get rid of it. That's what we heard last week, right? Aren't we living um, like his people by his commands, trying to love God, trying to love his people, trying to live a humble and quiet life in this world? So out of all the people in the world, why should we suffer for that? Why should we be suffering for such a life in obedience to God? But you know what? What Peter's answer is? Something very counterintuitive. He calls them to two things that are radical. And they are radical to today as they were back then. The first thing is this. He says, yes, you, out of all the people in the world, should not be surprised about suffering. You should expect to suffer. And there are good reasons for that. And then secondly, he tells them something even more radical. He says, and you know what? You shouldn't just expect sufferings for Christ, but you should embrace them. You can and you should rejoice in it. And again, there are very good reasons for it. So let's look at them now one by one, and there are quite a lot of them, but let's look at them one by one. Why should we expect to suffer? Peter says, don't be surprised when these fiery trials or deals come your way. This is not a strange thing that has happened to you as a Christian. Peter says, when you live holy lives, and he calls them to that right throughout the whole letter. He says, God says, I am holy, so you should be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. But when you do that, it's actually the non-Christians who will be surprised about it. When you don't join them in their sinful behaviors, when you say, no, sorry, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. When you are the odd one that sticks out like a Thor sum, you know, when that happens, Peter says, don't you ever be surprised at their reaction about it. When they start to slander you, mock you, and insult you for that. Isn't that interesting how, how quick surprise can change to scorn when you don't join the majority, the world, in their debauchery? Don't be surprised, says Peter. It's not a strange thing. It's a common thing. And in fact, it will get worse. Have a look at verse 17. Peter reminds them that we are living in the end times already. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. God's household. That's his people. Remember the living stones, what the children are just talking about? That's not the church building or the temple. Peter says, this is the, God's people. And this is our time we live in. The time after the cross and the time before his second coming. It's not an easy time. It's a hard time. It's through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. It's not a broad way. It's a narrow way that leads to heaven. Paul says in 2 Timothy, read, like, listen to this. He says, all who are 
desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, all of them will be persecuted. Don't be surprised, says Peter. Don't you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, anyone, let him deny himself and take up his cross. On a Sunday? No, not on a Sunday. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, denying yourself and follow me. I don't know about you, but when I hear that command from Jesus, it shakes me to the bone. I always picture, you know, the passion when I hear that. I have that picture in my mind when Jesus is going before us, beaten, bleeding, bearing, carrying this huge cross on his shoulders on his way to Calvary. And this huge cross is scratching on the surface behind him, and it's leaving an imprint on the surface. And don't get me wrong, it was Jesus and Jesus alone who could bury that cross to Calvary. No one else could have done that. No one else could have died or taken the punishment for your sins or mine. Taking God's wrath upon him. That was final. And it's important to point that out here because Peter talks about sufferings and persecutions. And when he does that, that has nothing to do with our redemption. Everyone who believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior is saved by that one man and that one cross that he was hanging on. Once and for all. But you see, what Peter and Jesus are saying is this. While the wrath of God is taken away for the Christian, the wrath of the world is still boiling hot against us. If you want to be a Christian, you still have to carry a cross in your life, one way or the other. And you know, when we become more like Christ, when we follow him, when we take up our cross and live holy lives, there's something interesting that happens, something similar to Christ. That cross that, that, cross that we carry, it will also leave a mark, an imprint on the earth. It scratches the surface, and there's friction there's friction between the cross and the world. And that friction was there with Christ, and it will be there with his followers. You know, when, when you want to be more like Christ, you don't have to seek out persecution or suffering. Just live a holy life. Take up your cross, and it will come to you one way or the other. <laughs> In John 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did you hear that? They hate us because of Christ. Because we bear his name. But they can't get to him. He is seated in heaven in glory. 
but they can get to his bride. They can get to the household of God. And that's where persecution starts. It is because of him that we should expect sufferings. That the Christ, that's, that's, that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. That's, don't be surprised about it. Expect it. But don't expect it to be without purpose. In fact, every suffering you experience because of Christ is allowed by whom? Have a look at verse 19. It might surprise you. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we suffer according to God's will. Let that sink in for a moment. God has his sovereign hand in all your sufferings. It's not out of control. It's not random. In fact, God wants his people to suffer that way. And by suffering, Peter does not mean something that is justly deserved, like what is mentioned in verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or other kinds of criminals or even as a meddler. Well, that is actually shameful. That is sinful and deserves just punishment. Now, God wants his people to suffer in a different way. He speaks of unjust sufferings just for being a Christian. And he has a plan and a purpose for all of that. And what's the purpose? What, what is that purpose? Well, the trial uh, mentioned in verse 12, he, he mentioned that before, right, in, in chapter 1. He said, these trials they are like a fiery furnace, a refining furnace. Peter says God's purpose is to test you, to test the genuineness of your faith. God has a plan. There's a reason why he's sending persecution towards his people. He's refining the church as a whole and individually. He's shaping your character sitting here, your faith. He refines you and makes you stronger. God says sufferings are essential to the formation of a Christian character. And you know what? I, 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 actually, think, I actually think we should be surprised. But we should actually be surprised because we don't see more suffering in the Western world. Sometimes I wonder, you know, if Peter really had that shirt on. I, li I, I love KPC in a Galatian way. And he would enter through that door and you would come in here with some other first century Christians. What would they see when they come here to Kenmore? Would they see... Something like strangers living in a world in exile? Or would they see people that are almost indifferent from the world around them? People who seem to live their lives very comfortably together with the world. People who seem to assimilate into the world with all its worldly desires. Except maybe on a Sunday for an hour or two. Or would they see strangers living in exile, living holy lives, set apart from the world, being visibly different from the world, glorifying God? Would they see a church that is scarred by persecution and prepared to take more of it, expecting to be persecuted and hated by the world? A church and its people bearing the cost of being followers of Christ, bearing the cost of persecution in their private lives too. But amidst of all of that, 
what they see at church, God's people with a smile on their face. Not depressed by all that, but rather strangely rejoicing about it. Is that us? Is that you as Christian? Because you see, that's where Peter goes next. You say, okay, I get it. Persecution will come our way one way or the other. But how do we deal with it? I would expect Peter to say something like this now. Persevere. Be patient. Long-suffering. Endure. But it's not what he's saying. Instead, he gives us this one unexpected command. Rejoice in it. You know, recently I... Christine and I, um, we learned that one of our very close family members, he goes around in our wider family and to our friends in Germany, and he tells them this. He says, you know that Reich and Christine, they're actually in a cult? Over there in, in Brisbane, they live their lives, and um, what they are doing is actually completely nuts. <laughs> They are following a cult and maybe even potentially a dangerous cult. You see, I don't think we have to be martyrs to experience unjust sufferings for Christ. Um, it can be a small conversation in your workplace with your friends or with your family members. Now, when I heard that, when I heard that about this, this person doing that, I didn't rejoice. I was angry. I was sad. Was I expecting it? Maybe, maybe yes. But I didn't feel blessed by it. And I certainly didn't rejoice about it. So you see what Peter is saying, I need to hear that. You need to hear that. Because rejoicing is not our normal reaction to it. But it actually should be the Christian reaction. Why? Well, Peter gives us many reasons for it, but one stands out. He says, because you participate, you fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Listen to this from verse 13. He says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You are, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then he continues in verse 16 and he says, If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Suffering doesn't bring happiness. That's not what Peter is saying. Pain is real whether inflicted physically or verbally. But we have to understand the joy Peter is talking about. It comes when we realize that Christ allows us, God allows us to stand in his place to receive the persecution which others would like to inflict on him. Let me ask you this. Why is it that so many people, when they are swearing, are using Jesus Christ as a cast word. I have never heard them use Buddha or Dalai Lama or Mohammed as a cast word. 
Have you? No, they use Jesus as a cast word. Why is that? I tell you why that is. It's because there is still that friction between the cross and the world, between Jesus and the devil. Oh, yes, there's a spiritual force involved in all of that. Yes, and Peter gets to that in chapter 5. But you see, they can't get to Christ. He's seated in glory on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And so they go after those who bear that same name. They go after Christians, which literally means Christ followers. So if you are united to Christ, if you are in Christ, you are sharing in his sufferings. And that is an honor. Do you remember what, what Jesus said to Paul? You know, at his conversion, when he was still called Saul, on the road to Damascus, right? He was just about to persecute the church. And then he fell from his horse. And he had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, that's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yes, when the church is persecuted, they are actually targeting Christ. We are united in him. There's an intrinsic link between you and the risen Lord. We are one body, and as one body of Christ, we are sharing in his suffering. That is an honor. Why? Because it actually confirms that you are in Christ when you suffer for him. You know, John Calvin, he puts it beautifully. He says, persecutions are in a way seals of adoption for the children of God. It's a badge of honor. In our sufferings, we identify with Christ. And even though we will never experience in a slightest bit the amount of suffering that he took for us, we still can identify with him in our sufferings. And we learn more about him, don't we? To a small extent, we can learn how the world hated him and still does. This is how we do become more like him. Christ is saying, you are my frontline soldiers now. You're staying at the front line. And so go out, suffer for God's glory and for the cause of the gospel. That is something to rejoice about. And here's another reason. Um, you know why you can rejoice? Because you're not on your own in this battle. You're actually blessed. Because you got the spirit who was, you know, the same spirit that was resting on the prophets. The same spirit that was resting on King David. The same spirit that came down from heaven Resting on Jesus, the spirit of might, the spirit of counsel, of wisdom, who empowered Jesus in his ministry. The same spirit who would later come to Peter, rest upon him, fill him to the extent that he spoke with boldness and zeal the gospel under persecution. That's the same spirit who is resting on you in suffering. And this spirit is not an it. It's not some vague power or some force. We should never make that mistake. We should never, you know, we should never call the spirit it. 
He is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's the third person. And he is called the Spirit of glory here for a reason. Because through us, through our sufferings, the Holy Spirit is doing what he always does. He's pointing to the other two people and persons in the Trinity. He helps us to endure so that the Father and the Son are glorified. When the Spirit of glory is resting on us, when we suffer, God is glorified. You see, God sends his children through, through a fiery furnace to refine them, yes, but he never lets them go alone. He's actually with them in that furnace. He rests on them through his Spirit. And when we get out of the sufferings, not only do we get stronger and refined, but God was honored and glorified by it. What a blessing that is. What a reason to rejoice. What an honor that is, a privilege that we can take part in this. You know, the reason why I love this book, not this book, but the Bible, God's Word, why I love it so much, it's because the people in it, you know, they are real. We can identify with them. They are not some made-up characters, um, polished or even predictable sometimes. Look at Peter. You know, I tell you, I know why he says, don't be ashamed. Peter knew very well what it means to be ashamed of Christ, denying him three times. And then he got this look from Jesus Christ, right, that pierced his heart. And he wept so bitterly at that moment. I think Peter knew that the bitterness, the remorse, which he felt in that moment, I think he knew that that was actually worse than all the persecution and suffering that came later. And he doesn't want you or me to go through the same thing. And Peter must also have remembered Jesus' warnings. When Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my word, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So let us remember this. The next time you and I, we are standing there and we are facing this one situation where we can either stand up for Christ or we can hide away and be ashamed. Let us remember that he was not ashamed to bear our sins and to die a shameful death for us. But rather let us rejoice and have the opportunity to suffer for his name for the cause of the gospel. And before we get to the finish line, here's, a, here's probably the biggest thing to rejoice about. The biggest reason to rejoice is that sufferings are only temporary, right? We have seen they come to us by God's will. We should expect them. They make us stronger. They refine us. They're for God's glory. But they're only temporary. And we see that with Christ as well. The man of sorrows, the suffering servant, was raised from the dead to glory. And he's now the Lord of glory. And we can rejoice because not only do we honor, have the honor to share in his sufferings now, but we will share in his glory too. When Christ returns and is revealed in all his glory, oh, what a joy that will be. You know, that will be the next level of joy, unspeakable joy on that day. You know, you and I, we, 
I mean, think about it. We have never seen Christ. We have never seen him. We have never fully experienced what God's glory looks like. Peter got a glimpse of it. But on that day when Jesus returns, you and I, we will see him. Can you imagine that? We, we will see him for who he really is. And then in a twinkling of an eye, we will indeed be made truly like him in all his glory. What a day that will be. That's the day when this prayer, make me more like Christ, will be fulfilled to its utmost, to its perfection. You know, C.K. Chesterton, he once said, when you stand in the valley, everything looks so big. But when you stand on the peak, everything looks so small. And our sufferings for Christ will look like nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed on that day. That's where we're heading. That's where we go as Christians. But we can't read that passage and skip over that huge warning sign that Peter puts there. Because there's also another side to that day for those who are not in Christ. For those who heard the gospel and disobeyed it. Those who actually inflicted the mocking, the insults, and the persecution on Christians. Those who have the blood of the martyrs on their hands. And Peter warns them earnestly. Look, look and listen to this strong warning. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome, or literally, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see, the fire of refinement that God's household is experiencing now, it's nothing compared to the fire of hell that the ungodly will experience on that last day. Unlike the refinement of the church, which has a good purpose and is only temporary, only the beginning, Peter says. These flames of hell, for an e they are an eternal judgment, conscious punishment, and that fire will not be quenched. Um, this is a final destination for the ungodly, especially those who heard the gospel and disobeyed it. What a scary outcome that is. And let me tell you, if you're sitting here today, and you think, I'm not that bad. I might not be a Christian, but I'm not mocking them. I'm not insulting them. I do as much good as Christians do. In fact, I'm doing better than most Christians when it comes to moral standards and ethics. Let me tell you what. You need to repent. And you need to trust in God instead of yourself. Because there is no middle way. You're either on the side of the cross or on the side of the world. And if you're on the side of the world, you do actually insult someone. You are insulting Christ. You're insulting God because he is Lord of everyone. He's the author of your life. He's your creator. And if you don't give him the glory and honor that is due to his name, if you don't believe in him, 
then sadly you are on the trajectory of hell. And so I urge you, turn around and do it today. Why would you want to spend eternity in the pit, in the deepest pit of hell, when you could spend it on the peak of glory, in the presence of Christ and your heavenly Father, your Creator? And this is precisely the comfort on which Peter ends this whole section in verse 19. It's a remarkable verse. And with that we finish, um, because as Christians we know who our Creator is. He is faithful and trustworthy and just. And Jesus knew that. Do you remember when they hurled their insults at him? He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How did he do that? Well, in his biggest agony, at the point when the unjust sufferings just became almost unbearable on the cross, what did he do? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the same word here. I commit my spirit into your hands. And we can rejoice because we have the same Father, the creator of the universe, trustworthy and faithful, who knows your sufferings and who also knows what you can bear. And therefore, Peter encourages us in this last word, verse to keep on doing good, to entrust and to commit our souls to God like Jesus did, to obey God's will like Jesus did, and to glorify him in our sufferings like Jesus did. So hear this remarkable verse. So then, those who suffer according to God's will commit should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. May that be indeed us, so that we may indeed become more like Christ. Amen.